Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Holiday greetings, everyone. This is Natalie, and I'm excited to welcome to our show, Scott Chatham, PhD and CEO of Faro Health. Faro Health closed a $15 million Series A led by Section 32 in June of this year, 2021, and is the first integrated clinical development environment that simplifies the design and authoring of complex clinical studies. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. So let's go ahead and kick this off by recognizing that e-clinicals or software automation for clinical trials has been around for years. And the push to create better automation inside clinical trials has been a focal point of the industry for some time. So can you tell our audience, uh, first off, what is an integrated clinical environment? I'll frame the question a bit in that traditionally where e-clinical sits today is people have solved individual point solutions. So when there's a particular problem, let's say collecting electronic data, we used to do it on paper forms, uh, collecting that in electronic data capture systems. So that that's what I call a point solution. So someone's able to translate a very manual process uh, into a computerized one. And it's the same for recruitment. We have these fantastic companies now who are building interesting solutions to be able to scrape through EHR systems and find participants. They used to be extremely laborious doing that by hand, but they're all individual points and that you can have as many of between 50 and 60 of these for a trial, solving everything from supply through to, as again, data capture. What we're trying to do at Faro is we we want a platform where you can pull all these together in one environment. So what we've seen in other industries is you kind of have a really great way through uh, systems integrations to have sort of one control system for designing something. Uh, and then you're able to integrate point solutions into it and automate what is, you know, the handover between information. And that's what we're we're doing here. So how did you and your team, how did you come up with, with the software and why is it unique to the industry? So to, to clarify the question is like, why did we, <laughs> why did we want to come up with this solution? Yeah. This stems from, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 20 years and what happened is about two years ago, just before we started this company, I took a sabbatical and one day I was actually surfing in Costa Rica and I was trying to work out yeah, what to do with the rest of my life. And I started listing all the things I couldn't stand about my job. So <laughs> constantly uh, reviewing the same clinical trial protocols, uh, trying to explain to different teams some of the consequences of the des- design decisions they've done and what that would actually mean for recruitment, what would that, that would actually mean for sites and even more important for participants. And then just the sheer frankly, pain of having to run huge, enormous teams to basically manually handle a huge amount of information. So I would have multiple project managers on some large projects just handling uh, configuring systems. And that's gotten to the point that it was incredibly annoying. And so after creating that checklist in my head, that actually became the founding feature list for this company. I love that. So you just thought as you're catching a wave, there's got to be a better way. (laughs) 
think I own there's yeah. reasons I don't like this and I know yeah. there's a better way. Yeah. And I actually called yeah, my co-founder uh, of the company and started talking to him about going, okay, you've been in life. He's been in life sciences uh, many years longer than myself. And it was yeah. like, okay, it can't be just me who's having these frustrations. Uh, and then I started talking to more and more people. And I think what was uh, interesting to hear is everybody has the same problem. We're all dealing with the same frustrations and trying to handle what is frankly a huge amount of increased complexity in this field. And so that's, that's, you know, the, the kind of the founding story of this company. The light bulb. I love that. So let's have you tell our audience a little bit about the current state of clinical trials. Yeah, uh, happy to. What's happened over the years, so I've been in this industry about 20 years ago, or started about 20 years ago. And then it was, you know, we used to plan our clinical trial protocols in Microsoft Word. So it was Word then. Mm-hmm. And we put a table together or a schedule of all the things that is going to happen to a participant. So what are we going to ask these patients who are, you know, our key partners in this trial? What are we going to get them, ask them to do every day uh, every day that there's an activity for them. And what does that mean for the physicians who are collecting that data or the site staff? And that was fine for kind of the amount of information we were collecting then. Move forward now to today. What's actually happened is that the complexity has increased over, over by about 70% and it's actually accelerating. So the amount of things we're actually asking patients to do now has massively grown. Now, there's a couple of reasons why uh, I'll cover at the end. And what's happened is these things have become very bloated and the ability to actually run them on a, you know, in a successful timeline and then to keep patients engaged during that, you know, has really, really become difficult. And I think the other challenging thing that the COVID pandemic showed is that when patients could no longer go back to hospitals or in some cases, even today, many uh, patients are still a little bit concerned about going back in for a blood draw or other things. Uh, to risk getting exposed is the frequency of that has kind of exposed a lot of the problems that we've, you know, that's been creeping up and it just pushed us, I think, over the edge. That makes sense. So the more, the more demands that you put on a patient who's participating in the clinical trial, I can imagine that, that there would be an inclination to skip a step or two if it becomes overwhelming. So really figuring out what is the data we really need to collect and why it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I'm saying it's actually even more complicated because in many diseases like Parkinson's, for example, where I've spent a little bit of time in MS, you actually have, you have carers for these patients. So you're not actually asking one person to do these things. You're often asking for two people to do them. And so you know, there's just this level, particularly depending on the disease, there's just this level of extra involvement that goes beyond even the patient. It can involve family members. There are travel commitments. Most people live about an hour and a half from an academic center, if that's where it's being run. So it's these types of um, extra burdens are, are really tough to ask patients to do. That's such a great point. And I, I think that's absolutely correct. My my mom has had Parkinson's for the last 15 years, and it it does fall largely upon her caregiver's you know, unfortunately, she's not participating in clinical trial, but it often does fall upon those caregivers to take these additional steps. You have spoken in the past about how what you and your team have developed is a patient-centric platform, you know, and, and for some of the reasons that you've already discussed, but why 
is this so important? Yeah, I think it's for a number of reasons. I mean, when we design clinical trials, as a, you know, as a scientist, we tend to think about, okay, I want to answer this question. Unfortunately, I don't always think about, well, what does answering this question and collecting all of this data mean for the patient? It's not because they don't care. It's more because you are deeply concerned about one uh, answering, you know, collecting the data to answer the right question. And I think, and this is a bit of a roundabout answer, there's been a little bit of scope creep. We have a tendency to look what was done in the past mm-hmm. uh, and copy and paste, and then not necessarily, fit, and then we add to what was done in the past. We never really think from first principles, is this the right data to collect? Mm-hmm. And am I collecting this in a way that's patient-friendly? And I think what we did at Faro was uh, create a tool that as you actually make these decisions, you get real-time feedback about how does this impact the patient journey? How does this impact the cost of the trial? How does this impact the burden on the site staff? These are the types of things you can do, I think, with uh, modern cloud, you know, cloud platforms versus the way people do it today, which is a table in Microsoft Word. So what we try to do is show in real-time as you make these decisions, so every time you have an act, add an activity in the schedule showing what this means exactly for the patient. We help focus these teams who are making these decisions into really focusing on the, you know, the, the main player that matters, which is the patient. And I think the other thing with showing that real-time impact, you can start to really see that, you know, it's one thing to have just a table where you say, well, I'm doing a blood draw every hour after dosing for the next eight hours because I'm trying to understand the pharmacokinetics of this thing or the thing I'm studying. It's another to actually show what that means when you add, you know, travel time for the patient, what the staff are doing between then. And all in all, you may have an 11-hour visit, you know, for a patient. And that's a lot to ask for some people. How do you do that, Scott? Like, well, give us an example of what that looks like in real time. So you you know the patient's address, you know where the clinical trial is taking place, where the the hospital or doctor's office is, and then you're getting the feedback in real time. What is that? look like as an application? Well, in our system, we, we come in at the design stage. So somebody, a, a clinical scientist who makes the decision, okay, I want to understand, I'm going to give this uh, drug or intervention to someone. And then I want to see how it changes and um, by, you know, what's the biology of this thing. And so I may need to take, do a blood draw every hour. What we show is uh, back to the designer, what does that look like for the patient as they actually make these decisions? So they'll put in, okay, I need to dose this at, let's say, 8 a.m. Okay, I need to do a blood drop at 9 a.m. I need to do one at 10 a.m. And you can start to see what that journey looks like. The reason it's important to kind of be able to visualize these things, we unintentionally sometimes make decisions that don't work for sites. And I've been guilty of this in that I've tried to arrange a blood drawer at one time and then within the time in between, we'll get a chest x-ray. I didn't really think about the fact that radiology is in a different department. They're going to have to probably go to a different building. Can I really achieve that in an hour? Because there'll be a waiting time. There'll be people who are more in front of that. That means I'll need extra staff actually on the site side. So the hospital running this to actually even the ability to mobilize a patient over to that area. Someone will have to escort them, make sure that happens, escort them back uh, through the entire time. And so this inherently affects the cost and the time, which again is, focusing teams to uh, really think about, do I really need this data? A large amount collected is never used, unfortunately, because we tend to err on the side of, well, this person did it before and no one's going to argue with me that, you know, they did it before, so I'll just collect it. 
even though they may not be a scientific question they're trying to answer directly with it. So again, we try to give them that feedback when they start looking at these journeys and what the time and the, the, what that the cost is, what the blood volumes could be, how they aggregate over a day, a week, and a month. And see, so is this really practical? And do I really need all of this? Yeah. Sometimes I, I think the reason that we're seeing such transformation, such disruption in so many different industries is because you and other founders just stop and think this, does this need to be so painful? And is there a better way? And harnessing, everybody realizes how important data is, but you don't have to collect and, <laughs> and expect that you'll be able to harness or use all of it. And by creating such a patient centric platform, I think you really are giving an opportunity for, for more to participate. And I want to talk more about that. Uh, and, and also for the designers to ask the why, why do we do it? We don't just, as you said, need to copy and paste. And, and it really was shocking to me. I remember from our, our initial meeting where you were <laughs> explaining that all of this is still done in Microsoft Word. It's very difficult to imagine how you could really collect and record uh, so much information. And, and I also remember from our initial meeting that you had been monitoring the COVID-19 vaccine rollouts from Pfizer and Moderna and, and just thinking, and, and you said, well, they're huge, but they had to put all their resources behind this monumental task to develop these clinical studies in such a short amount of time. And that really stuck with me. You've described some of it, but what is it that, that is still being done by those doing it the, the traditional way in Microsoft Word during these clinical studies? And how is it that your platform is eliminating a lot of these time-consuming administrative burdens? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it kind of stems from, as I said, the way we've operated, it hasn't really changed a lot <laughs> since I started. And that, yeah. you know, the governing document is your clinical trial protocol. And that gets written uh, in Word. It gets emailed around. It gets reviewed by different team members. And there's many, many team members in these things. And that's what, that's what's such a monumental achievement by, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and other companies in this space, being able to move these trials along so rapidly. But to go into it, so they start writing a clinical trial protocol. There's many teams that collaborate in the operate, opera, I can't just say it today, operating <laughs> these trials, <laughs> making them happen. And what I, what I mean by that is, so the protocol is the parent, but it doesn't contain the actual minutia and some of the details that actually have to happen. And the reason is, is because medicine is not standardized, clinical trials have to standardize absolutely everything because you're measure, looking for small changes in things. Mm. I'll give a simple example. Right. You probably go to your regular doctor's office and uh, they would measure your weight. Some places may uh, measure that weight three times and take an average. Uh, some others may ask you to take your jacket off. Some may say, well, you have to strip down to your underwear. That variance uh, could be make or break a trial, particularly if you're looking for weight loss or something like that. Wow. We can't handle that. So we specify everything down to the minutia of the way we collect every single piece of data. That includes when we do blood draws, the order we take it in. You know, when you go to your lab corp, they have the little colored vials. Uh -huh. We make sure that it's taken even in the same order 
things like that. The syringes, the kidding, like around that, those are aliquots. We specify that and send it to the sites. Every single part of a clinical trial is prescripted and it has to be tracked. To do that is an enormous challenge. And it means we hand the protocol to, let's say, people in the electronic data capture area. So these people kind of create computerized systems that physicians or nursing staff or clinical coordinators can enter information to about enter information about the patient and these measurements that they collect. But that team has to take a protocol and understand it, write a specification, which is often in Microsoft Word, uh, and then program these systems. Best practice is about 12 weeks uh, to do something like that. Some people can get it down to four. Mm-hmm. But that happens again for drug supply. So shipping the drug out, making sure it's refrigerated, everything from the little labels that get printed on, on the different uh, drugs, um, the way we make sure it's randomized and blinded, the coding structure for all of that is all done by hand, taken from this protocol specification. And so it's huge, huge teams of people that wow. offer this. And the complexity is mind-boggling, to be honest. Kind of my I'm exhausted just listening <laughs> to all the steps. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things I've spent my career focusing on. But I think what the, the big uh, moment for me, I think, was when I joined Google, uh, Google Health, uh, which eventually became Verily, mm-hmm. was to understand. I wanted to go there to understand how software was done. And then I saw these are phenomenal tools that all the software engineers had for basically being able to check code, being able to pass it to other people, being able to configure uh, complex hardware systems uh, from what kind of reads like specifications to me. And I start when, and then one day it hit me as like, oh, actually, if we had tools like that, then we could automate a lot of this manual downstream processing. And so that's, you know, kind of, the second story of Faro is the consequence of having an environment where you can get people to design trials, understand the impact of their decisions mm-hmm. means it's now specified in a digital format and you can start automatically doing some of these downstream system configurations. So you no longer have to spend, have someone spend 12 weeks trying to interpret the intent of a protocol. It's already there because it was put in at design time. And so that's kind of this, the extra bonus now of being able to Uh, work in a system like this. Sure. And I can imagine we all know just even taking, you know, pharmacies that have automated the process of filling prescriptions have seen what a dramatic decrease there's been in the incident of human error. And so I can imagine that by helping to automate a lot of this and decreasing some of the very tedious, repetitive manual processes that are required with clinical studies, we may also be uh, reducing that those incidents of possible error. Yeah, no, that's a great comment. And I think that's the other advantage here of being completely digitally. Having one source of truth that then can be tracked uh, automatically is one, reduces a huge amount of burden, but two, just reduces a lot of the manual mistakes that happen. We have a lot of people who spend time kind of checking things creating audit trials and making sure that, you know, we have full traceability of the data, mm-hmm. but that can take months on the back end. If you remember when we were waiting for some of the Pfizer detailed data readout, that was a large amount of people who were contracting to the company, manually assembling and checking that data, working extremely long hours. It's really, really laborious. 
you know, all credit to them. I'm, I'm not good at that. Yeah, it's a lot. And to your point, you know, what we've really seen is that the pandemic has accelerated many industries, you know, out of necessity. And, you know, I think it really shows us how important it is in the world that we live in now to have a platform like Feral Health and what has been, I mean, what, what has, has the pandemic, I mean, I I imagine it's been an inspiration to your entire team, but what is it that makes a platform like yours so particularly critical now? It's a couple of things. I think one of the problems is this complexity increase we've had just over time and that we've we look at what was done in the past you know we tend to be quite cautious we add to it where we don't necessarily go back and think from first principles as you know what should be the right amount of data what is the appropriate question i'm answering for this and i think it's now that we've lived through this pandemic too is the way people even access healthcare has slightly changed we have a lot more people doing telehealth now And I think we have to really think about uh, as an industry, how do we leverage all of these technologies? And and to my mind, it has to be solved at design time. What happened with the pandemic is we had all these pre-written protocols uh, and then we had to adjust them and we had to do whatever we could to try and keep them moving, Mm -hmm. uh, to keep our programs moving along. And I think now is the time to step back a little bit as we designed new trials, new programs is how can we at design time now leverage all these new technologies and how can we leverage them in, in really impactful ways? And I think you've, you've touched on this with diversity is one of the problems when we design trials, we tend to think historically we did them at big academic centers and they tend to work Monday to Friday. Trials tend to run, you know, seven in the morning to about three or four in the afternoon. That really limits uh, who can actually go if you have a full-time job because you can't be taking off. Or it's not easy to take off the amount of time to participate in these particular programs if you have to sit for 12 hours for blood draws or you have to go in for these long assessments. Or uh, in the, for Parkinson's, if your carer has a full-time or another part-time job, these are huge you know, impacts on a lot of people. What we can do now is really think as we design this, is like, well, how can I leverage how can I reduce the amount of data I'm collecting to a really appropriate, the appropriate amount and then make sure I can leverage, you know, uh, when, you know, if it's appropriate, I can have a telehealth visit. I can do my survey completely remotely. Sometimes it means for a simple blood draw, I might send a home health, you know, a nurse to the hat to their home. And I think it's kind of working with patients as well to try and understand this and what works for them. And maybe we are less of a one size fits all design. Now, maybe we have um, designs what we're actually seeing now from companies is it's a choose your own adventure. They let participants or patients choose some of the way they wish to do the trial. And that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, And that's new to me. We've seen that start to emerge in the last year. And we're thinking, well, how can we support that? How can we make, you know, make that easier to to do for these sponsor companies? Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, Scott. And I, I do think that we all now recognize how critical it is to have speed and accuracy and, and efficiency and yeah, choose your own path to include patients in the mix. It's crazy that it is something new and novel, but can absolutely imagine what that's going to do to help in the design of trials that is going to reach a a broader and more diverse 
population. Can you share more? You talked about sort of distances and work times, but but in what other ways can we meet this existing challenge of, of being more intentionally inclusive in the design of clinical trials? No, it's a, it's a great question. I think uh, there's a lot that can be done. I think even it comes down to is that even some of the choice of wording that we use uh, in the way we uh, create documents for patients to explain the trial, to explain why we're doing it and the locations that we run these in. So uh, it might mean rather than going to a couple of academic centers, we may actually need to outreach or look for sites where we're able to access different communities. Uh, And I think, as I said before, I have a sister-in-law who's African-American with MS and mm-hmm. I have a colleague who was running a trial in that space and I asked if she'd be interested in participating and I got a hell no. And mm. it was interesting to get. <laughs> like, why not? Yeah. yeah, it was very interesting to get her perspective on, um, you know, why this was not a good fit. And uh, it was interesting. Some of it was around the language used in the informed consent form because I don't think it particularly spoke to her, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around, I think, how she views uh, her experience with MS. And two is I just think the locations didn't work. We have to become much more intentional as an industry on solving this diversity problem and making sure that we are far more inclusive. And again, it kind of has to be you know done at design time. We can't wait until the end to realize, oh, actually I didn't get you know this particular demographic. Oh, how am I going to go and get that? And we've got to get better at doing this up front. And, you know, I think some of this is solved by trust, which means again, and this is happening, by the way, there is, there are industry movements here. I think it's, they just need pushing along a bit more is getting early feedback. Cause I think that builds trust in these programs, getting, you know, reaching out to some of these different groups and people living with uh, these diseases and making sure that, you know, the way we prepare this material, the way we talk about it is appropriate. Yes. And sometimes it's not a one size fits all. And, you know, Scott, I think that is part of the beauty of moving from a highly manual process to a digital one. You can start to really measure these things. And and I think we can in this way more easily become intentional in terms of inclusivity when we create this type of transparency at the design phase. I believe that that is how you can make a real difference uh, rather than just trying to fix it at at the end of the process. And I'd love for you to speak a little bit more to our audience about how it is that you gather this feedback. You know, it was it was good that your sister-in-law shared with you her impressions uh, with respect to the consent form and why she didn't want to participate in the in the clinical trial. How do you go about gathering feedback from patients uh, to ensure that their voice is represented early and continuously through the process? Interestingly enough, there's some new startups in this space to kind of help facilitate this. But how I personally tactically like to do it is I think you do have, I look to social media to find active groups in the space okay, um, and try and find, you know, some of the voices who are really looking for Intend to look for, I think, language around, I should say, if, I, if you can, when you reach out to some of the forum um, holders or forum owners, I should say, is ask them, well, would you be interested in participating even, no, not necessarily in the trial, but, mm. for, you know, they are kind of like focus groups. Sure. But I think it's it's going that extra bit to be able to present the 
you know, the design of the trial in a way that makes sense. And I think that that goes on us. And I think we're, we're spending quite a bit of time at Faro on how do we help give visual impressions of trial designs to people. I would say people who are not trained in medicine can actually understand them because these are written for scientists, just to be blunt. A protocol is written for nobody, not many other people uh, other than ourselves and, the, and regulators to understand what, you know, what is the intent. And we create informed consent forms and other documents, which are very stripped down um, pertinent information for participants to see if this is so that they can understand if this is worth doing. But before you get there, uh, what we've been exploring is can we create visual representations of what does a blood draw look like and why is this, you know, why are we doing this? Uh, are these volumes, uh, what does this volume even mean? Uh, because we've seen designs, actually I'll give you a personal example. I had one study where we took 300 milliliters of blood uh, in one visit and what does that mean? I can tell you that's about a can of Coke. Oh gosh, uh-huh. that's... It's almost I, would, I think most people would pass out. <laughs> yeah, it was a... We had to... There was a reason we did it. It was, I, I would say, um, it was a lot. But again, it's putting these things in context um, so that groups can understand them because when you have a focus group and you say, well, it's... Uh, I'm going to take 300 milliliters of blood. It's different to when you go, okay, it's this, it's a can of Coke. <laughs> it looks like yeah. this. And this is what it'll mean. I'm not as <laughs> yeah. good with my yeah, yeah. This is what it'll mean. Um, yeah. And then I think you get, you know, because the question is, well, what will that do anything? And so it's being able again to, and this, kind of, this is the beauty of automation, is being able to actually auto generate some of this information so that it is much easier for these groups to, to get, you know, important feedback. Because it's, I was to say, the reason this doesn't, none of this necessarily happens smoothly right now, it's not because nobody really wants to do it. It's because we are so caught up in some of the minutiae of making sure this happens correctly mm. that we kind of sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, you lose sight of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I really, you know, I'm actually trying to achieve X, Y, and Z. We want to cure this disease but you kind of get, get lost in, well, actually, I also need to make this vendor, this happen, this has to happen, and this has to happen, and this has to happen. And so mm. by that's the beauty of automation here is I think we can kind of free some people's brain space up so that, again, you can really yeah. focus people on, you know, this is this is what this means for people and is, right. this, is this doable? Yeah, no, no. Like the uh, continuously asking the why and let's, let's focus uh, where we should focus and, and remind ourselves why this is, so critically important. And I think you're right. We can get lost in the minutia and, and we can continue to do things the way they've always been done for sometimes for no good reason. I want to talk a little bit about the series A that you closed earlier this year. And as we're heading into 2022, uh, where are you focusing uh, your team's efforts, Scott? Yeah. I mean, we're really highly focused right now around probably two two key things from a f- feature perspective is one is growing the what we call the insights we give back at design time so as people who design these trials actually do these things is creating as i'm saying more visualizations around the patient journey giving more context to it uh doing some you know fancy stuff that i care about with statistics Mm-hmm. Uh, where you can hint at, by the way, why are you collecting this? There's uh, no there's no statistical power behind it. You can collect it in everyone and it's going to be meaningless. By giving people kind of useful information and the comfort to maybe not include things, 
because mm-hmm. um, scientifically it's probably not needed. So we want to build some of the, you know, that out and then increasing integrations with partners. Uh, and by partners, I mean some of these downstream systems uh, like electronic data capture so that people don't have to manually do all this stuff. And so that's kind of from, from a product uh, view. And I think from, from the company view is just expand our partnerships. Uh, to the, the Series A it will enable us to take on more customers and uh, the ability to make onboarding of customers more seamless. Right. Because that's the, I think that's the, the the nasty thing behind the scenes, and I think this is true for every startup, is the internal facing tools we may have to do when we bring on a customer are nowhere near as pretty as the external facing software everyone uses. So it's making, <laughs> yeah. you know, we do a lot of things to get customers up and running um, by hand so we can start to invest in, you know, being able to scale the company that way. Sure. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And uh, Scott, what about, what about looking further down the road uh, next five years or so, you know, looking beyond 2022, what changes do you see possibly happening in the clinical trial process or, or what other types of major shifts in the industry do you predict? Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. I think the, the fundamental design is changing with the pandemic triggered. It is, I don't see, I, I see these new hybrid designs where people go to a site visit for some particular part. So they go to an academic center and then they'll have home healthcare do the others. So I think these are going to, there's going to be now these really much more patient centric, much more uh, reality based trial designs where we try to make, we make it easier for people to participate. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is, um, which will be interesting, is there's going to be a convergence, in my opinion, between companies like Faro who are doing automation and real world evidence companies and a couple of others. And I actually think we'll be able to do, we may see timelines dramatically shrink for trials. Mm-hmm. And what I hope is, you know, we eventually strip them out by 50, 60%. It's a journey and it's going to take a lot of different companies. It's, in my opinion, this is not a one company solution. This is a lot of companies working together that we've kind of seen in the, you know, more in the SaaS software or software development space where there's deep integrations with certain vendors to enable new things to happen. And I think that's that's what we're going to see is start to see more, much more in-depth partnerships because one person can't solve everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where we're going. Good. Yeah, no, I think we all, we have to see more collaboration and and yeah, more useful data capture and sharing of information to improve our current state. So that's exciting and a good thing to look forward to in the future for sure. So on this podcast, we also love to share practical tips with other founders and leaders. Are there any lessons or tips that you have learned along the way that you maybe wish you would have known earlier? I think the big one, and we had our management offsite yesterday <laughs> for the year. Oh, wow. <laughs> Take smaller steps more rapidly. <laughs> Take smaller <laughs> steps more rapidly? <laughs> yeah, I think what we've learned is we can't guess exactly the way a feature gets implemented is going to resonate with people, how they exactly use it. At least I can't predict it at all. I've realized I'm terrible at it. What we're much better is doing doing something really well in a small step, seeing how it lands and then building the next logical one rather than trying, rather than trying to go from A to D in one step. It's just much easier to do really quickly the ones in between. And I wish we knew that a little earlier. 
I, I mean, I don't know if that's generalizable, but that's how no, I, listen, I I'll you. tell you, Scott, I, I, behind my desk, I, I have these various post-it notes with some of my favorite sayings uh, or, or just, just little reminders for myself. And I'll tell you right after you said it, I, I wrote down, take smaller steps more rapidly. <laughs> I think that's going to resonate with a lot of, a lot of us out here. Thank you for that. So, uh, gosh, I've, I've truly enjoyed our discussion, Scott, and I'm sad to reach this episode's conclusion, but let's end by sharing a fun fact. Please uh, share with our audience a fun story, joke, favorite movie, or even your drink of choice. Um, uh, this is mine. I'll start. Uh, and I recalled this earlier today because the friend in question is visiting and uh, we've, we've had some, some heavy rains here in Northern California and was remembering that when I was 16, uh, the friend in question, I had to escape in a canoe down the Amazon River following torrential rain and flooding. Um, now that I know that's more terrifying than fun, uh, I'd say, but is there anything you're willing to share with us, Scott? Uh, well, let's stick with the water theme. <laughs> I've surfed almost my entire life. And I think it was four years ago, I decided to just try stand up paddleboard surfing, which is not more than paddleboarding. This is kind of paddling into, it's out on the open water, paddling into waves. Oh, how do you do? I can't even, <laughs> I can't even imagine that. And I naively thought, well, the skills must translate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hell no. <laughs> it was a backwards surfing. <laughs> no, I didn't realize that how hard it is to get out on a paddleboard because these things are huge yeah. um, compared to a surf, small surfboard to get it out through broken waves and then paddle into them. And it's sad to admit, it took me about two days before I caught my first kind of unbroken wave. And I, you know, I was paddling in for it. Then I turned around to go back out again. And this huge wave that was probably one and a half times my height oh. was coming right at me. And I was just, just like, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I was oh. get there. Yeah. And I got hammered oh. <laughs> and, and yanked. <laughs> and oh. into the beach. So, you know, that was my terrifying part because this thing was large and it was like, oh, I'm stuck. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. <laughs> but uh, it, having said that, it was, it was still fun. I, I left incredibly bruised uh, and humbled. Good, good lesson learned. All right. So as we continue to improve the accuracy and workflows of the laborious clinical trial process, FeroHealth not only addresses clinical barriers, but also reveals the importance of creating more access to trial data that will allow for more discoveries for underrepresented groups. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Scott. Very much enjoyed it. And we wish you continued success on this next phase of your journey. And thanks everyone for joining us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.